Amen. It is good to worship together today. I'm so glad to be with you all. Uh, I see some guests here today that I think might be here because of the uh, Milligan uh, anniversary weekend or homecoming weekend. So we're glad if that's true. If you're just, maybe you're here for some other reason, we're glad you're here. For whatever reason you're here, you're all welcome. Uh, it's a good day today to worship God together. Uh, but listen, before I jump into the message and the series we're in, I want to draw your attention a second time. You already heard about the announcements, but a second time to a couple things that are in your bulletin. So hopefully you've got one of these on the way in. And if you look over on the right column, you see a list of stuff related to our 150th celebration. I want to make sure we've, we know about these and know how to get connected in these. Um, Fall Festival is coming up October 30th. It's going to be just tons of fun. So many people have poured into this. If you've got kids and families in your circle of influence, invite them. We've got stuff for adults too. It's just going to be a great time. So make sure to take advantage of that. That's a great opportunity for you to invite some people to see what's going on at your church. And, and maybe they can get connected to the church that way. Also, uh, the banquet and then our combined worship service, November 13th and 14th. Uh, now is the time to register for that banquet. You can see it's the second thing right there. Get registered. There's a link there. If registering online seems intimidating to you, just call the church office. We can take care of it over the phone. We want to get you at that banquet. Uh, it's going to be a great time. We've got child care figured out for that, so let us know if you need that. We'll get that taken care of. That's November 13th. Uh, between now and then, uh, two things you can do that will help us. Uh, today, we are trying to sort of create a video memory book, a kind of a snapshot of this moment. And one of the ways we're doing that is by asking people to write in the room right there uh, to my left, your right. Uh, we've got a camera set up in between services. Just swing over there. And if you would just say a quick happy birthday, congratulations on making it to 150. We want to get as many people in the church as we can in that. You can say, you know, thank you for being my church home for 70 years or for seven minutes or however long you've been here. Say a happy birthday greeting. It'll just take a second and it'll help us create a memory. Also, if you looked on that last one there, I want to explain what this is. I got lots of questions about this. It says, tell your story. You can email it to John Guy, jguy at fcc-jc.org. So when we turned 100, we compiled a book. And one of the things that was included in that book was the stories of some of the people that had had a significant impact on the first 100 years of our church. And as I now go back and read this book, those stories are some of the best parts. It'll just be, you know, this is so-and-so. He was a banker in town, but he also taught the three- and four-year-old Sunday school class for 25 years. Or this is so-and-so. Her bread recipe was what we used for communion from 1910 to 1932. And some of those details are just beautiful. Well, we need to capture those same kinds of stories for the, this most recent 50 years. Because the last time we did this was 50 years ago. So what we, when we say we're looking for stories, tell your story, we really want your stories. Who are the people you think we shouldn't forget and that should, we should tell a story of? Maybe, maybe you've got a hundred words just to say, my Sunday school teacher was so-and-so. And we're going to preserve these digitally so 50 years from now and a hundred years from now, when people want to know the story of this church, they don't just know when we built a building, 
but they know about the people. So we want you to help us tell those stories. So that's what that is. You can email your stories, and they'll just get compiled and saved and become a permanent part of our archive. But we don't want the people that you don't want to forget. We don't want to forget them either. All right, last thing I'm supposed to mention is don't forget... Use the connection card there at the bottom. You can sign up for First Things First there. You can share prayer requests. You can subscribe to the FCC News. Fill that out for us. That makes a big difference for our communication. All right, let's jump into the message. We're talking about the fundamentals. Like in sports, before you learn the trick plays, you've got to learn how to pass and dribble and shoot. And the same thing is true in our faith. There are some basic fundamentals without which nothing we have to say makes very much sense. We're doing it in six weeks. We've made it halfway through. And you could summarize the first three weeks of messages maybe with this sentence. Creation is beautiful and broken. But God's kingdom comes to earth in the person and work of Jesus. Some of you are thinking, why did I sit through three sermons if he can say it in one sentence? I don't know, but that's how it works. Okay, creation is beautiful and broken, but God's kingdom comes to earth through the person and work of Jesus. Three weeks ago, we talked about creation, and we just said that God spoke the world into being. But the beautiful world that God made has been broken by sin and rebellion. And then we, two weeks ago, we talked about kingdom. And we said that from the moment of the rebellion, God has been at work reestablishing the reign of God over all things. And then last week we talked about Jesus. And we said the the person through whom all this work is done is Jesus. We said he's the maker of all things and the savior of all things. And he will not rest until he is the ruler of all things. But this... This reality that creation is beautiful, but it's been broken by our rebellion, and that God is establishing a kingdom over which Christ will reign eternally, it leads to to what I sort of think is, is the great cosmic question. As God reestablishes God's reign over all creation through the work of Jesus... What is God going to do with the rebels? You know, the ones that broke the thing, right? The ones that ignored God's command and rejected God's lordship and abandoned God's leadership and went off in their own direction. What is God going to do with the rebels? Us. I mean, God can't just ignore the rebellion, right? The rebels just can't be allowed into the kingdom, for it would not be God's kingdom, and Christ would not reign over all if we were part of the kingdom refusing Christ's reign. Still in our rebellion. God can't just ignore the rebellion. On the other hand, God's pretty clear that God won't just abandon the rebels. Because God loves us and made us and created us for a good purpose. And the same God who cannot ignore our rebellion will not abandon us rebels. So for the next three weeks, 
we're going to unpack God's answer to the great cosmic question. What will God do with the rebels? I've got one sentence to cover the next three weeks too. Ready? Jesus saves us from sin and death, empowers us to new life, and will return in eternal victory. This is God's answer to the great cosmic question. How will God respond to a creation that is beautiful and beloved, but also broken? What's God going to do about it? How will God respond to a created people that who were meant for God's kingdom, but instead have become rebels? How will God respond to me? Isn't that what I really want to know, right? I mean, I'll be honest, I love you all, but what I care most about in the world is how is God going to respond to me? Broken as I am, rebel that I am, but also someone who so wants to be made whole, who so wants to be restored to the kingdom, who so wants to be part of the eternal restoration of all things, the way God meant for the world to be and the way God meant for me to be. How will God respond to that? And, and how will God respond to you too? How will God respond to your rebellion? Because you also want to be what you were meant to be. And want to be part of the kingdom you were made to be part of. You also, like me, probably want the assurance that when Christ restores all things, part of the all things that Christ will restore is, is you and, and me. This is the great cosmic question. What will God do with the rebels? And the cool thing is, the Bible just loves to answer this question. I mean, the Bible just answers this question over and 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 over again in all kinds of different ways, using all kinds of different language, as if no one metaphor and no one image of God's response could quite capture the fullness of it. Oh, the Bible says that we have a debt we can't pay, and Christ will pay off our debt. The Bible says that we have been broken by the evil of the world and Christ will repair what's broken. The Bible says we're sick beyond healing, but Christ heals those who come to him for healing. This is actually the word, where the word salvation comes from. You've probably heard people say that. Christ, Jesus saves, God offers salvation. That's just the word for healing. The Bible says we're dead and dead people stay dead. Unless they know Jesus, because Jesus makes dead people come back to life. The Bible says that we're enslaved to sin, but Jesus Christ has broken the bonds of sin. We're enslaved to our flesh, but Jesus gives us a new flesh. We're enslaved to the world, but Jesus establishes a new kingdom, and, and we're finally free, like for the very first time, like we've never been free before. Like you didn't even know you were a slave, and all of a sudden you're free. The Bible says that we were orphaned and alone, and Jesus says, oh, you're part of my family, and you're part of my kingdom, and you get to sit at my table, and you'll never alone ever again. You're, 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 you're with me. I'm your brother, and you're my sister or brother, you know. The Bible says that our lives without Jesus don't have any meaning. 
because death comes for us all, and then everything we did, just poof, who cares? It's all over, you know? Time makes it all meaningless. But anything you do for Jesus, will that last forever. It's eternally significant. It always matters until the end of time. Um, the Bible says we're rebels against God's kingdom. Our very souls are at risk because while we are in rebellion against God's kingdom, any victory for God is a great defeat for us. And then the Bible says, but you can become a citizen of God's kingdom. And then any victory for God is a great victory for you, even though you had nothing to do with the victory. You're just sitting back there, glad you're a citizen of the kingdom that will be victorious. And in every case, in every case, I mean, again, the Bible just talks about this all over the place. In every case, the Bible teaches how a bunch of debt-ridden, broken, dead, enslaved, sick, orphaned, homeless rebels can instead become whole, alive, free, healed, adopted, purpose-filled citizens of God's eternal kingdom. And in every case, the, the answer is the same. Place your trust in Jesus Christ. That's the answer. And by the grace of God, you can be restored to God's kingdom. No longer counted as the rebel you are, but now counted as a citizen, a child, a daughter, a son, healed, whole, transformed by God's spirit over the work of God's patient work with us into the very person you are always meant to be in the very first place. We call this grace. It's just a, it's just a word that means gift. It's, a, it's, just, it's just the word means gift. And it's described so many different ways in the Bible, but always with the same invitation to trust in Christ, put your hope in him, and find your hope in him. The Bible just, I, I just love, the Bible just can't, it, just feels like it never runs out of ways to describe what God wants to do. In fact, let's look at one more. Look at one more that I haven't talked about yet. Maybe it's the one you were waiting for me to talk about. It's a good one. It's a good one. Um, the Bible says that as rebels, we were guilty under the penalty for our sin. But in Christ, we are declared righteous. We're declared not guilty before God. And then we are made righteous. Obedient citizens of God's kingdom. Um, sometimes when you have an idea that really it's really big, it helps to, 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 to come up with a word that helps you remember the idea. And we got a word for this one. I'm going to talk about this word. You'll hear me use this word several times. I don't want to define it up front. It's the word justification. And I know it sounds all big and high fluting, but, that's, but all it means is what I just said. We are declared righteous, not guilty before God. And then by God's spirit, we are made righteous. The Bible says you are justified, and it means those two big things, declared righteous, and then by God's spirit, um, through you are made righteous. Take, take a look at how, how God's word talks about this. This is just one of the many ways the Bible talks about what, what God wants to do for you through Jesus Christ. This is from Romans chapter 3. If you've got a Bible with you, or you've got your phone, maybe you can look up Romans. I'm going to spend a little time in the next Romans 3, 4, and 5 here. I just want to, I just want to kind of park on this one image that God's Word gives for how, how Christ wants to change your life. Here's, here we are. Romans chapter 3, I'll start in verse 10. As it is written, 
There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They are swift. Their, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. When I say that we are rebels against God, this is what I'm talking about. But, but maybe you're thinking, I don't know if I'm that bad. I think I'm a pretty good person. I've been following all the rules lately. I didn't speed on the way to church. Well, here's what he goes on to say, verse 20. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous. So that's this justification word. Declared not guilty in God's sight by works of the law. That's an important to keep track of that list. No one, most importantly, not you, will be declared not guilty, righteous in God's sight by the works of the law. Rather, through the law, we just become conscious of our sin. He goes on, though. But now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. The righteousness is Given. That's amazing. It's just given to people. Who does that? Through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference between the Jew and the Gentile. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified. Declared not guilty. Declared righteous. Freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement. Atonement means to restore a relationship. A sacrifice of bringing back together through the shedding of his blood. To be received by faith. Just, just trust him to do it for you. And he does it for you. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his forbearance, he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. God looks at a world full of rebels. And it's as if the angel armies say, what should we do with all the rebels? Should we attack? Should we destroy? Should we eliminate the rebellion? And God says, we're just going to do nothing right now. We're going to leave their sins unpunished because I've got a plan to forgive all their sins. And when the time is right, I'm going to invite them to trust in my son and pay the price. That's what we're going to do. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his righteousness now so that he is just and he's the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Where then is boasting, Paul asks. Well, it's excluded. Because of what law? The law that requires works? No. The law that requires faith, for we maintain that a person is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Go on with me to chapter 4. Paul's not done. He's still got more work to do. He says, what are we going to say about Abraham? 
our forefather according to the flesh. What did he discover in this matter? He did a little life research, right? He kind of figured out some things about being righteous before God. What did Abraham figure out? Because if, in fact, verse 2, Abraham was justified by works, well, then he's got something to brag about. Well, not before God, of course, but, you know, before other people. But what does Scripture say? Abraham believed God. Abraham trusted God. And it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, to the one who works, wages are not credited as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the one who does not work, but trusts God, who justifies the ungodly, their faith is credited as righteousness. That, that little phrase there is so important. God doesn't justify godly people. Godly people don't need to be justified. They're already justified. They're already not guilty. They're already righteous before God. It's just that no people like that exist. So God justifies the ungodly. It's the, to the ungodly that says, you put your trust in my son, I declare you not guilty. I cleanse your sin. I forgive. I cancel your debt. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. We could keep reading chapter 4 here. Uh, but honestly, Paul gets a little re repetitive throughout Romans chapter 4. You go back and read it. You'll see what I'm talking about. He gets a little repetitive. And the reason he gets so repetitive is because he knows that religious people are really hard to convince about grace. Religious people, those of Paul's day and those of our day, have a problem sometimes with grace. Because we're just so impressed with all the good we've done. And we're just sure that God will be impressed too. And you get impressed enough with the good you've done and you start to wonder, maybe I could pay off the debt. Maybe I could get myself declared not guilty. Maybe I didn't break the law after all. Or if I did, maybe it was just a misdemeanor. And so for the whole chapter 4, Paul just repeats himself and repeats himself and repeats himself and says the righteousness of God comes by faith. The righteousness of God comes by trust. The righteousness of God comes from what Jesus has done, not what we have done. And then in chapter 5, he says this, therefore, since we have been justified, declared not guilty, placed in the right, uh, named as righteous, through faith, trust, belief, we have peace with God. This is a reference to this rebel kingdom stuff we talked about two weeks ago. What were we? We were rebels. We put our trust in Christ. We have peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into the grace in which we now stand. And we boast in the hope of the glory of God, not only so, but we also glory in our sufferings, because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance, character, character, hope. And our hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured out into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. You see, at just the right time, while we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. While we were powerless, 
What chance did we have of ending the rebellion and getting out with our lives? No chance. Unless God had a plan. That's the great cosmic question. If God is going to reestablish God's reign over a rebellious and broken kingdom, what will God do with the rebels? Look at verse 7. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person. I suppose for a good person someone might dare to die. But God demonstrates his love for us in this while we were still sinners. Christ died for us. That's what God does for the rebels. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies, we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, how much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we boast in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. That's the whole plan. This is God's great big cosmic plan. For healing the world, reestablishing the reign of Christ over all things, and still doing something with the rebels. He can't just ignore them. The rebellion has to be put down. But he can't abandon them because he loves us too much. So what does God decide to do? To just give them grace. To just cancel the debt forgive their sin he says just turn from your life of rebellion trust in Christ be baptized into Christ's death be raised to life with Christ and you're a citizen at peace with God and if you are now at peace with God how much more will you be saved will you be healed that's the sense of transformation God's not done we're not perfect citizens No, there's a process of healing, but how much more can you be sure that God will heal and restore you to be the person you were meant to be? And this idea, I mean, nothing is more fundamental to the Christian faith than this idea. If this had been a one-sermon series, I would have preached this sermon. This is it. It's the only thing that's different about the Christian religion from you know, some other religion. You, this is our one big offering to the philosophical world. Grace. That what you cannot accomplish, what you cannot earn, what you cannot provide, God provides for you. And I'll be super clear, church. Without the promise of grace and the communication of grace and lives of grace, we have exactly nothing to offer the world. Well, nothing. This is the thing we have to give to the world because this is what Christ gives to the world. And I know how tempting it is. I get tempted, too, to want to immediately start talking about obedience because when we do trust Christ, we don't just trust him to save us. We also trust him to lead us. And and that involves obedience and submission to his will. And I want to talk about all that. We're going to talk about it next week. But here's the thing. If we talk about obedience before we talk about grace, we'll kill people. Because if obedience comes before grace, it's just too late. I already disobeyed. I already broke the rules. If obedience comes before grace, I, I should just give up. It's only because of grace 
It's only because God says, I'm not going to count your sins against you. I'm going to pay the debt you owe. I choose to live at peace with you even though you have chosen to live in rebellion against my kingdom. It's only because God says that that we can even begin to have a conversation where God says, now come and follow me. Now come and walk this path. We have to drink deeply from the well of grace before we say anything else, church, or we will abandon the gospel. Grace changes everything. I mean, I, I really, one of the hard things about this series is uh, each one of these weeks could be a whole series in itself. But here, here's just a little sample of what grace would change, okay? If you get grace, like if you really get that it is a gift that God gives you that you have not earned or accomplished, grace absolutely shuts down the disease of spiritual pride. And spiritual pride is still a great threat to God's church today. But if you understand the truth of God's grace, it will destroy spiritual pride. Here's how Paul puts it. If someone else thinks they have reason to put confidence in the flesh, I've got more. Circumcised on the eighth day, the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, Hebrew of Hebrews, in regard to the law of Pharisee, as the zeal persecuting the church, as to righteousness based on the law, flawless. He said, the law. But then verse 7, but whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage. And that word for garbage is like the sewage kind of garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul says, what God just gives me is worth more than everything I've accomplished in my entire life all put together and wrapped up in a bow. What God just gives me is bigger than that. You understand the truth of God's grace? It will confront our tendency to speak in judgment of other people. Because see, if our relationship with God is secured by God's gift and not by our accomplishment, if it's secured just because we've trusted in Jesus, then how can we condemn others who don't live up to our moral standards? We don't live up to our moral standards. Here's the way Jesus puts it. Do not judge or you too will be judged. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. That verse is a threat. We just got to be super clear. That's a threat, right? For those of us who's under grace, Jesus is saying, listen, if you decide to cast out and reject everyone who doesn't live up to your moral standards, if that's the measure you use, well, then I, I guess God will use that measure to you. That's the threat of that verse. The same way you judge others, that's how you're going to be judged. But if you recognize that everything is grace, everything is grace, everything is grace, and show that same sense of gift to others, that's, that's pretty good. Paul writes a letter to, in the Romans, near the end of Romans, after all this great teaching about grace, he, 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 he talks about a, a doctrinal controversy they were having. They were having an argument over Christian morality. Some thought it was a, a sin to eat meat at a pagan party. 
Others thought it was a sin not to eat meat. Paul writes, Romans 14, 4, Who are you to judge someone else's servant? To their own master, servants stand or fall, and they will stand. Why will they stand? How can he be so confident that they're going to stand before Jesus when they might get the whole meat question wrong? How can he be so certain? He says, oh, because the Lord is able to make them stand. We just read that in chapter 5. It is the, this, he says, this grace in which we now stand. How do I know I'll stand before God? Is it because I'm so good? I am not so good. It's because God's so gracious. I'd rather get judged by the perfect holiness of God than by anybody else in the world. I want to hear you hear that again. I would rather stand before the judgment of the perfect holiness of God than anyone else in the world because God is also gracious. And my God has said, if you just put your trust in my son, I will pay your debt. I will declare us at peace. I will forgive your sin. I will heal your brokenness. I'll do it all. Understanding the truth of God's grace will confront the myth of self-sufficiency. This is one of the most significant Christian heresies of our day. I'll call it the myth of the good person. And it is, it's just the sweetest heresy. I mean, if you have to be a heretic, this is the kind of heretic to be. It really is. It's just the sweetest heresy out there. This heresy sounds like this. Well... I'm not very religious, but I I try to be a good person. No one is righteous, not even one. I mean, I get it. I mean, obviously trying to be a good person is better than trying to be a bad person. I mean, I get it. Like, yay. But it isn't how you restore your relationship with God. And even Christians, we got to be clear, Christians, we fall into this heresy of thinking that the most important thing about other people is whether they're a good person or a bad person, rather than whether they've trusted Jesus Christ. I don't know if you remember this song. I love this song. I am a sucker for a sappy parent-child song. Some of you remember the song Butterfly Kisses by Bob Carlyle. Anybody remember that song? Just be honest. I can't be the only one who remembers Butterfly Kisses. All right, okay. It's crazy sappy, but unironically, I love sappy songs, and I love butterfly kisses. But it has this one line that drives me crazy. I don't know if I can sing it, but I'm going to try it. It has this one line that drives me crazy, and it goes something like this. With all the things that I've done wrong, I must have done something right to deserve hugs in the morning and butterfly kisses at night. Something like that. Okay, you can applaud now. As the moment. Okay, great. Yeah, that was it. Okay, good. Thank you. No, no, no. Please, please. Okay. Okay, okay. I love the song, but that line does me crazy. With all the things that I've done wrong, I must have done something right to deserve hugs in the morning and butterfly kisses at night. That's not our Christian message. Now, in case you're wondering, have I rewritten the song to adapt it for grace? I have. You could sing it like this. With all the things that I've done wrong, I know I've done nothing right. To deserve hugs in the morning and butterfly kisses at night. And can you applaud again there? No, please, please, you're too much. You're too much. No, no. But that, see, even it's a great song. I love this song. Um, Bob Carlyle, you're watching this. Thank you. You're a gift to music. Okay, but, but that one line isn't grace. 
And all we have to offer is grace. Like, that's it. That's our whole bit. Even when we talk about sanctification, even when we talk about obedience, even that is grace. The myth of self-sufficiency says this, and Christians get corrupted by this heresy, and and non-Christians hear it, and, and some of you out here today believe it. The myth is this, I may not be perfect, but I'm a pretty good guy, and isn't that what God wants? No. God wants you to trust him for your salvation. That's what God wants. And the Bible's super clear, like it's crazy consistent on this. The, 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 what grace declares is that we don't get what we deserve. Like that's just awesome. Like, as you leave today, maybe you just want to, the whole rest of the day, every time you see somebody, just shout at them, I'm not going to get what I deserve. We normally, in life, when people say that, they're always complaining, right? Well, I deserve better. I didn't get what I deserved on that test. Or I didn't get what I deserved at work. But no, no, no. That's the best news ever in the history of the universe. I don't get what I deserve. I get grace instead. Paul writes, Acts 13. Therefore, my friends, I want you to know that through Jesus, the forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. Through him, everyone who believes, everyone who trusts is set free from every sin. A justification that you were not able to obtain under the law of Moses. Your good life strategy for repairing your relationship with God simply doesn't work. This will be careful. What the prophet said doesn't happen to you. Look, you scoffers, wonder and perish, for I'm going to do something in your days you'd never even believe, even if someone told you. People do this today. Like, I don't know. I can't believe that whole grace thing. Sounds too good to be true. It is too good to be true, except for the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Somebody thinks to themselves, I'm a good person. I'm just not very religious. Or somebody says, I, I try to be a good Christian. I hear people say that. I- I- I'm a good Christian. They're a good Christian. I've never met one of those. I don't know what those are. What, what even is a good Christian? Every Christian I know is a messed up sinner of hypocrisy and contradiction who happens to have said, I won't get out of this world alive unless Jesus saves me. That's the only kind I've ever met. So if you know any good Christians, introduce me. I'd love to meet some. There is no self-help. Don't believe the myth of the self-sufficient. No one gets out alive. And and self-sufficiency is a rejection of the grace of God. And the grace of God is the only way that peace with God is restored. Last thing I'll just tell you is uh, if we really understand grace and talk about grace and believe grace, it will confront those around us that are trapped by the pain of despair. And uh, I'm, I meet people like this every once in a while, and, and that's almost nothing that breaks my heart more. I, I, I know a friend several years ago, I was trying to tell them about grace and love and how God just wanted to give them freedom and give them reconciliation. And they responded to me, they said, you know, I want to believe that, but when I was in my 20s, a pastor told me that because of who I was, I was unforgivable. A pastor told me God wanted me to burn in hell. That's what a pastor told me. 
And now you tell me something different, they said. How can I know that you're right and they're wrong? How can I know? John 3, 16. For God so loved the world. That word so there isn't about how much God loves the world. It's about how God loves the world. You could translate it. God loved the world like this. This is how God loved the world. He gave his one and only son. So that whoever trusts in him, believes in him, will not die but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. If today you are in despair, thinking surely this whole grace stuff can't apply to you, maybe somebody even told you it couldn't apply to you. I'm so sorry they lied to you. But they did indeed lie to you. For God loves the whole world. And Jesus did not come to condemn the world, but to save the whole world. You see, God had a great cosmic problem. God can't ignore the rebellion because God's going to reestablish God's kingdom. But God also can't abandon the rebels because God loves the rebels. God made them and has good desires for their life. And so God planned to just forgive them and heal them and restore them and pay off their debt and forgive their sins and adopt them into God's family and to make a place at the table and to heal their sickness, to bring them back from the dead, to declare them not guilty, to to cut the bonds of slavery to sin and flesh and the world. And all that, God just said, I'm just going to give them. It'll just be grace. And no one will ever earn it or own it or deserve it. And sometimes they'll think they will, but they'll be kidding themselves. They never will. It'll always be a gift. And they just need to place their their whole trust in my son Jesus. That's all they need to do. Just place their whole trust in my son Jesus. Trust him to save you. Trust him to lead you. Trust him to heal you. And he'll he'll just do it. If you've never done that before, I'm going to be clear. You should just do it today. We're going to sing a song. I'm going to be right down there. You should just come up and say, I want to put my trust in Jesus. Because I want what God has to give me more than what I can get on my own. Because what I can get on my own is nothing. And if you've never done that, you should just do it today. If you want to talk more about that, you should find me after service. And we'll talk about it. We're going to sing a song right now. I'm going to pray a prayer for you. If you have trusted Christ already, my prayer for you is that you will live in grace, not in judgment or pride. And if you have never placed your trust in Jesus Christ, my prayer is just that today would be the day because there's no other way out of this world alive. Let me pray for you. Gracious God, 
It is all grace, it is all grace, it is all grace, it is all grace. And so we say thank you, thank you, thank you. For those who are here today trusting in you for our salvation, I pray that you drive out the spirit of pride that so easily infects us. I pray that you would drive out the spirit of self-sufficiency where we kind of think we've, we're sort of getting it figured out. Maybe we don't need that grace stuff anymore. Would you drive that out? For those are lies meant to d disconnect us from you and to hurt other people. I pray that you would drive from this church any spirit of judgment, that we would remember that we are just sinners who found bread, and that we would have that same love for everyone else, wherever they are in their journey with you. But right now, most especially, God, I pray for those who need to trust in you today. Maybe they have believed the heresy of self-sufficiency. They're like, I'm a good person. I'm a good Christian. I've never met one of those gods. I don't think you have either. And I just pray that you would just see the lie of that and they would trust you today. Or maybe it's the lie of despair. Someone once told them they were outside of God's love, beyond God's forgiveness. And that they would just today just know that those were the words of the accuser. Those were not your words. And maybe they would just come. Lord Jesus, right now, all those who need to trust in you, may they do that. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.